I'm Alyssa. I'm Alyssa. And I am not Alyssa. Welcome to 52 Women, the official podcast of the Montgomery County chapter of the National Organization for Women. Uh, we thought we'd start a little differently this week and um, start off with a happy story. Um, so, happy and light, and I like makeup. I wear makeup for me. I'm a feminist. We're not, we're not saying anywhere, anyone wears makeup for anyone other than yourself. But anyway, Rihanna um, introduced her own makeup line earlier this week. And what's great about it is there's 40 different foundation shades. And just to give some background, like, there's often a criticism to makeup companies that they don't include enough shades for women, women or people of color. Um, you know, there's like 60 different shades for white people between medium neutral, neutral, whatever. But there are usually not a lot of shades for women with darker skin or people with darker skin. And that's what was different about Rihanna's makeup line. That across the 40 shades, there were plenty for people of color. To the point where four days after it launched, they're sold out nationwide. All the darker shades are sold out nationwide. So um, it just goes to show that we need to... Attention to people of color. We need to be inclusive. We, we need to just, just pay attention to everybody. It made me really happy when I saw that, that there's this inclusive makeup line and people are so excited. They're going out and buying it and the reviews seem to be amazing. So that was my happy story for the week because we have some unhappy stories. But um, it's called Fenty Beauty. Um, I'm going to go to Sephora tomorrow and check it out. Um, because I have not had access to it before. But, um, just, you know, something nice. That is nice. I, I, um, I was thinking this week, actually, I was standing in the line at the grocery store and I'm a little late on September Vogue. I used to love getting September Vogue. I just, it just looks like art to me. Like all the new, all the stuff from the the runway and I don't know. I just love it. Um, anyway, I didn't get it this year and... Um, I was looking at the cover and it's Jennifer Lawrence, whom I really like. I think she's very funny. I think she's great. Um, but it's her in a red dress, uh, with the Statue of Liberty behind her. And it says American Beauty. And she certainly is beautiful. Um, it was just interesting to see because her body type is very particular to, Um, a certain stereotype of American beauty, I think. Um, And I do think that women of color and women who have curves and all different types of women um, are left out from a lot of things in fashion, the fashion world, Um, just building off of the makeup conversation. Like, I think, like, I'm Latina and... I have, like, my butt fits in pants that my waist is too, the waist is too big, the butt is too small, and, like, I have to pay, like, a lot of money for designer jeans and then get them altered if I want to buy designer jeans because they don't really fit my body type, and I'm sure they fit Jennifer Lawrence's body type, and I just think that idea of American beauty in fashion and makeup, it, it leaves a lot of women out, women of color and, and, um... And women of all different body types. So it's nice that uh, 
that that's proof positive that it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also a financially sound decision to to pay attention to women of color when it comes to makeup. Yeah, you put that better than I did because if we know people listen to one thing in this country, it's their pocketbook. <laughs> yeah. The two and a half was right because it's good to be inclusive, but if anyone has doubts, it does pay off on the bottom line. Yeah. For sure. October 18th is actually Love Your Body Day. And that's something now does some stuff with every year. So we could talk about it when it gets closer to October 18th. Ooh, that would be fun. Yeah. All right, moving on to our next story. Not as happy. Not as happy. For those of you who don't know, Germantown, Maryland, which is in Montgomery County, had one of three abortion clinics in the country that regularly performed uh, late-term abortions. Um, there are some around, others around the country that don't do it on a regular basis. But this one in Germantown, so right by us, performed on a regular basis. And the clinic is under contract to be purchased by a very big anti-choice group. The group is called the Maryland Coalition for Life. Um, they've been protesting this clinic for years. They recently got a very large donation and now are they're buying the clinic out because I guess the clinic was struggling for funds. Um, the doctor who has been performing the late-term abortions at the clinic um, since 2010 he came from Nebraska to come here to practice. He says he's going to be opening up another clinic somewhere in the area. Uh, they haven't announced a location yet or if that is actually definitely happening. Um, the clinic where he's at now, the Germantown Reproductive Health Services Clinic, is still in, in practice for now until they close. They've been performing abortions for over 20 years and now it's being bought out by anti-choice group all right so diana phillip who is the executive director of our friends at uh, NARAL pro-choice maryland has confirmed that the doctor is working on on opening up another clinic although she she either doesn't know or didn't provide many details but she also points out that I believe the other two clinics who perform late-term abortions on a regular basis are in Colorado and New Mexico. So she says that the Maryland clinic draws a lot of women from around the East Coast here to get their health care that they need. Um, and without it, you're asking people from all along the East Coast to travel to Colorado or New Mexico to get <laughs> their health care, which is quite a far trip. Obviously, there's a lot of big population centers in on along the East Coast. Um, so you're talking about women from not only Maryland, D.C., Baltimore, but you know New York, um, Philadelphia, Boston. You know all those cities. They all come here, or a lot of them come here to to get this this procedure done. So this is some. Go ahead. And it might have been right after the election or right after the debate where Hillary said, you know, she's pro-choice. 
but there was an article um, written by this woman, and I think the title was, I had a late-term abortion, and I'll try to find it so we can post it, but she lived in New York, and for whatever reason, she couldn't come to the clinic in Maryland. Um, I don't know if she didn't have any availability or what, but she essentially detailed her entire process of, uh, she went to Colorado, and it's heartbreaking because this, this woman, her um, her fetus had, had a terminal issue. I remember so, this article. Yeah. Yeah, and it and, and I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was it was not you know it was terminal, and that's, none of these situations are happy situations. But just the process of what this poor woman and her husband had to go through just to get health care that would eventually save her life, because I believe her life was in danger too. And the amount of time she had to she and I think she even detailed how much things cost as far as travel and all this and you know, she was very clear that she was privileged and that she could afford it. And yeah. she had a support system and all this, but it was just like if you don't have that kind of money or if you don't have that support system, it's horrible. It's horrible anyway, but near impossible if you don't have that. So, um, I'll try to find that so we can post it, but yeah, she just did a really good good job of documenting if you have to go to Colorado, the, the lengthy, lengthy, and expensive process. Yeah, and, and I also think part of the story here is that, um, besides that, which is the most important part, that it's healthcare, as Jenny Rose just said, and that um, it's a difficult situation as it is without having to go through that, um, is the part of the story that an anti-choice group has been able to um, raise enough funds to buy this out and, and is controlling things that way. So it's not just through legislation. There are many, many ways um, for these groups to get in and um, influence women's access to healthcare. And I was just reading an article, uh, I think we tweeted it out um, on our chapter, uh, Twitter, from our chapter Twitter account, about um, a group in California that has gotten permission to connect, collect signatures on a bill that would criminalize abortion. Yeah, make it murder. Criminalize yeah. in vitro fertilization or some kinds of, I don't know, some kinds of in vitro, I guess the non-natural cycled one, the one where you get more embryos, and would criminalize problem, some kinds of birth control. The problem with the in vitro is that you're quote-unquote, you're throwing away embryos. So right. you're, you're unless, creating more than one embryo. That's their problem with it. Yeah, I know. Um, unless you do the natural cycle. So that's why I think they were saying that it was only some IVF, was that they were okay with IVF in the natural cycle IVF, where you only get one um, egg, and so you only can, you know, you only implant one embryo. Um. Rather than the one, the one where, where um, without going into the medical part of it, where the woman oh, yeah. injects hormones and she, and they are able to bring out more eggs and harvest more eggs and create more embryos and um, deposit embryos and then decide what to do with the others. Um, some are donated, some are thrown away, some are used for stem cell research. It depends on what the couple decides to do. Um, I hate these people. I do too. And I, and I, I know it is, but it's true. Like I, 
when, when we tweeted this out, what I said was like, okay, it's Cal like right. It's in my head. I was like, it's California. This is not going to, you know, this is not going to happen. But the reason that we tweeted it out was because the, the, we've talked about a lot of times on here, the DCCC and the DNC not taking a strong enough stand on being pro-choice as a progressive value and making sure that they make promises not to fund anti-choice candidates. And when there are people out there who want to turn abortion and birth control and IVF into manslaughter, it, it's a perfect time to say, as progressives, as Democrats, we are willing to say out loud, we will not fund your campaign if you will not promise to legislate a pro-choice agenda. Yep. That's what we're up against. We're up against people buying out abortion clinics. Like, yeah, this, this is what we're up against. Um, yeah. This is not the only clinic in the country that has been bought out by an anti-choice group. Um, lots of clinics, even in blue states, have been closing just because they can't make ends meet. There are headquarters of anti-choice -cho groups that now live in places that used to be abortion clinics. So this is this is not a new thing. It, this one just we're highlighting it because it hits close to home. It's in our county, but also it's one of three clinics in the country that do this on a regular perform this procedure on a regular basis. Which yes, I think it's crazy that these places are getting bought out by anti-choice groups, but also the fact that there are only three clinics in the entire country that perform this medical procedure on a regular basis is absurd. Yeah. Well, like, I, your options are either go on the East Coast or Colorado or New Mexico. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's just... It's just that Roe v. Wade is like the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we protect women because there are so many ways to restrict access to, to the care. Yeah. And it's just the tip of the iceberg on, on, how, we, on how we protect women who need health care. Yeah. I... Infuriating. It is infuriating. The this article in the Washington Post um, talking about the the clinic um, says that the landlord of the clinic had protesters show up at their daughter's middle school's back to school night protesting with signs saying, "Please stop the child killing." At back to school night for the kid, they showed um, the protesters. I'm gonna call them terrorists. The terrorists were waving a large banner that showed the owner's photo, name, and phone number. Um, so sorry. Do do we know the name of this group? The anti-choice group. Yeah. The anti-choice terrorists. Yes. The Maryland Coalition for Life. I'm just wondering if they're doing this all in the name of God. Um, the picture <gasps> yeah. on the Washington Post article is this lady. Uh-huh. So we'll post yeah. the article. Okay. 
She's holding a framed picture of Jesus and a cross. A crucifix. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, very very um, righteous to go to a middle schooler's, very brave and very righteous to go to a middle schooler's back-to-school night to terrorize the kid and her family. I'm pretty sure yeah, the WWJD bracelets don't mean that. that well, is this not, isn't even... Uh, that is the resident Catholic on the podcast, <laughs> hashtag recovering Catholic, that is not how I was raised. So, I think these guys need to go back and reevaluate how they're living their lives and if Jesus would approve. Like, very few things in life make me matter than anti-abortion terrorists. Yeah. Like, they infuriate me. Yeah. Yeah. And I... Yeah, because they're harassing, they're harassing the women... They're harassing the landlord who owns this business, healthcare business. Like, and it's infuriating that, like, I get it. First Amendment rights are really important. I'm the first one to say the First Amendment is, like, my favorite. But there's got to be a line. And I don't think that saying that these people need to stand however many feet away from the door of the abortion clinic is enough if they're going to this, the landlord's Middle daughter's middle school, like this is harassment. Like, right, that's harassment. That shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, that is not free speech. That's harassment. Terrorism. Yeah, yeah, they're terrorizing. Yeah. And a middle school child? Why? They, I don't think have them. They wanted to shame the landlord's parents. Just fear, they, just fear tactics. Mm-hmm. We know where you live. We know where your kid goes to yeah. school. We're now going to tell all the parents who are coming. To your back, kids' schools back to school night. What, what you do? Yeah, so, and you yeah. know, and and it and the and it, the group, sorry, also sorry. um has attempted to document the number of women who go in and out of mm. the clinic every day. Um, I mean, these people are absolutely nuts. There's every year, um. I think it's the day after the Roe v. Wade anniversary. There's always the March for Life. Yeah. In D.C. No, it's the day of. It's the 22nd of January. It's the day of. They always go down there, and then the 23rd is something like the is like the pro-choice one, I think. But the but the 22nd is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and they all go. Okay. Well, a, a lot of the Catholic schools around here go. Did your school go, Jenny Rose? Um, my high school did fun fact, almost got expelled for refusing to go. Um oh, okay. my senior year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my um my high school I went to a private small private Catholic high school in New Jersey and every year on January twenty second there was a bus trip. Yeah. And I um never wanted to go because that's like totally not my thing. All right, well, I stand corrected. The day of the Roe v. Wade anniversary, they always come to D.C. And yeah. I remember a few years ago, or a couple years ago, it was, the, I was walking to the metro, like on my way home from work, and they were all over the place in D.C. They swarmed the area, and they all had GoPros attached to their chests. 
they were filming everybody who, you know, said something against what they were there for. So pro-choice, pro-women, pro-healthcare people. Yeah, um, they they use that as a scare tactic. Like they just videotape people who have any contact with them. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's scary too because um, I was I actually went to um, the OB right after the election. Oh, I went the November. day of the inauguration as a I protest. I saw your picture. Yeah, <laughs> with your Hillary socks. I did. <laughs> and my Hillary socks in, in the stirrups. <laughs> so That's bad. what I did. I scheduled for twelve o'clock on inauguration day. <laughs> fucking Mike Pence. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I was sitting in the in the waiting room at the gynecologist, and everyone there was like distraught. And one of the per- people behind the front desk, they were watching the inauguration on on their computer, and like people were like just in shock. And all the patients um, in the waiting room, by all I mean, like me and the two other people. Um, we were standing around the front desk, like, watching our computer, and we just like, can't believe this is happening. I was, yeah, anyway, I interrupted your story. No, yes. I, I'm, um, glad you did. I, no, I was just saying that I, I went right after the election, I mean, excuse me, after the inauguration, no, election, that's what I meant, right after the election, and, um, you know, on my, my OB had happened to switch to, like, a new practice, I'd refill out the forms. And one of the questions on the forms, which has never, I've just filled out and like the forms normally and never thought about it, is have you ever had an abortion? How many have you had? Because that's like a medical question that your yeah. doctor needs to know. Like when they ask how many, have you had any surgeries? Or like, have, you, have you had any pregnancies? Yeah. Were they terminated? Were they miscarriages? Were they? And I said to her when I went in, do you think people are going to be too afraid of what might happen to be honest on that question? Yeah, and she's like, people already lie on that question without this, without the political climate. And she's like, I can only imagine it's going to go up. And, like, I think that's part of it, too. Like, it's the smallest piece. It's not having to go to another state. It's not being screamed at. It's not. But it's but it's it goes all the way down to the smallest thing where women have to think twice about what they put on a form that they give to their doctor because these people are so terrifying and they have so many friends in high places now who have access to our records. It's just, it's, yeah. or who could potentially have access to our records. It's scary. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast. I know I've told both of you, but I used to work at an organization that was a women's organization, uh, not a healthcare organization or anything like that. And there must have been a cl- uh, clinic nearby that performed abortions because there would always be, like, one or two people, never more than that, standing on this random corner. Uh, and they would always be protesting abortion, um, just, like, in the middle of the intersection. And... I never figured out where exactly the clinic is, but 
<clears throat> another reason I know one was there is because they or whatever group they were connected with must have provided false information to always young women, teenager or teenagers, um, to tell them that they should show up at my office instead of wherever the clinic was. Mm. And we would get these young women and sometimes teenagers pregnant with like their friend, sometimes their boyfriend showing up saying I'm here for my appointment. I need an abortion and we had to be like I'm sorry. We this is not a at all a healthcare office. We can't do that for you. We're really sorry. And like try <clears throat> going or to another place or scheduling another appointment with this other group. Um, but we unfortunately can't help you. And the look on their faces when we had to turn them away, when they obviously made a big decision and were and missed school or missed work or yeah, did something. Yeah. Missed school, missed work. They clearly were scared or at least nervous about what they were about to do. You mean and it's not exciting and fun to go have an abortion? No. And I just, every time that happened, it would happen like at least once a month. Um, and it would just break my heart because... If you're already scared and, like, nervous about what you're doing and you show up to a place and realize that you've been tricked and and duped into going to the wrong place, like, how likely are you to try again? Yeah. And it's like, these people are... Or even can you? Like, if you've lied to your parents about where you were or you've you know and you've missed school or whatever or you've had to take a day off of work and that's expensive or you waited to you waited until you were at you know the 11th week like yeah yeah i mean it just i was just like these people are total assholes yeah and cruel that's yeah they're cruel and they're literally ruining someone's life yeah and it, it's, it's horrible that they don't see it that way. That they just see like, oh, I'm saving a life. Like, not taking into account the life of the mother. But they're, they're like, that, that mm-hmm. infuriates me. Like, that, that these people think that the life of the mother is just disposable and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's... It doesn't matter what they want. It doesn't matter what's going on in their life. It doesn't even matter if carrying the child to term will kill them. Well, too bad, because the only thing that matters are the cells that are in your womb. That's, that's the part that infuriates me, that the, the full-grown woman or, or the teenager or whoever doesn't matter once yeah. they're pregnant. Yeah, yeah. But it was never... Not that, like, it would it would obviously be awful if they did that to an adult woman. Yeah. Or, like, a middle-aged woman. But I don't know if they, like, advertise in schools or 
how they got access to these young girls and young women, but it was never somebody who was like over the age of 25 ever. It was always young young people. But it might have been one of those hotlines, you know, those like fake I guess, pregnant yeah. need help hotlines where you yeah. call and yeah, then, like, that's true. Yeah. So whatever marketing they did, it was always always targeted young people. And I mean I I can't imagine being like 17 and being in a situation where I was like, "Oh my god, I don't know what to do. I can't tell my parents. I can't have a baby. I can't I can't be in this situation. I need to go have an abortion and then showing up at like a random office because somebody tricked me. I mean, I just can't. Yeah. Well, and a, and a teenager's journey to I can't starts so early in so many places because it's I can't get sex ed that actually teaches me anything I need to know. Yeah. And then it's, I can't get access to birth control without my parents' ap- approval. And then it's, I can't get the morning after pill without somebody getting it for me. Mm-hmm. And then it's, I can't get an abortion. It's a lot of of ways that we fail young women yeah. all the way through. Yeah. And this this yeah. office I don't was in Virginia. I... I uh, I'm not familiar with the sex ed that they teach in Virginia because I went to school in Maryland. Um, but I don't know if it's different than what they teach here. It depends on the county. So it depends on what county you're well, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Some counties, yeah, some counties actually do teach it, and there's like parents can opt their kids out of it. Um, but I don't know about other counties. I My, my uh, secondhand expertise is specific to two counties um, where I actually did ask that question, but but that's also Northern Virginia, and I would bet a lot of money that it's different outside of Northern Virginia. Yeah, this yeah, was in sure. Northern Virginia, so yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like in Southern Virginia or Central Virginia. Like oh, Central Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because Montgomery County has. I mean, you you get sex at a lot of times over the years and a lot yeah. at a lot of different levels. Like but I, fifth grade, eighth grade, and then tenth, tenth grade. grade. Yeah, um, but it's still not as explicit. It, it is it as explicit as it really should be. Yeah, but like I can't even imagine going to school where there's like all they teach is don't do it. No. <laughs> why I don't understand why. Yeah. People well, those are, people don't live in reality. Yeah. And they forget what it was like when they were 18. Yeah. Which shouldn't be that hard to do since they probably had, had kids pretty young. Yeah. Wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. Uh, if, if anything happens with a new clinic and hopefully another one will open up. Hopefully it'll still be in Maryland or Montgomery County. We don't know. Um, but... We'll, we'll stay on top of it and keep you all updated. Uh, okay, so the next thing we want to talk about um, is uh, just just a quick little discussion about a story that went viral this week um, about a guy who had been dating a woman for four weeks, um, decided that he was in love with her and she was the love of his life, and when she broke up with him... 
he chose to play the piano um, outside where she lived until she agreed to talk to him in hopes that this grand romantic gesture would um, make her take him back. So before we talk about that, I just want to add too that once this went viral, uh, the commentary was quite divided, as you might imagine, between men and women. Men who basically said, women just don't want a nice guy. And women who oh, basically yeah, were like, get off my grass, creeper. Like, that that was the divide. Yeah. I, I, that whole women don't want a nice guy thing, in my experience, the guys who say that are not nice guys. No. Yeah. Yeah. That has been my experience. Their moms told them they're nice. Fun, but... Um, also... I'm sorry. That's just like sh stalking and yeah. harassment. Yeah. By definition, that shouldn't be considered nice. No. So, like, if that's not something you personally would do, men, because you think it's creepy, and he's not a nice guy. Yeah, he's not a nice guy. He's a guy who wants to pressure a woman and guilt a woman into dating him. I feel like I want, like, the hand-clapping emojis. Like, the, a woman has the right to break up with you without you harassing her. That, like, yeah. A, a woman is, a, like, is able to make her own decisions on whether or not she wants to date you. Like, yeah. I would clap, but it would be loud. But you get what I mean. I get what you mean. And I, and I think it goes back to, like, being nice. Just because it's a nice gesture generally. Like, Maybe bringing someone flowers is a nice gesture. Bringing someone candy is a nice gesture. It becomes not nice when the person on the receiving end Doesn't does not want it. Yes. Yes. It's like, it's, it's like the, it's the definition of sexual harassment. Yeah. Or it's like what if, if it's not wanted. Like that's like not wanted. Back off. Stop playing the piano. Leave her alone. Yeah, and I and I think it's I, I just think it's all con well I mean we all know it's all connected all this all this no boundaries I'm just trying to be nice you don't appreciate my romance is all it's it's all the lack of boundaries and I think that um well I'm speaking personally I guess I think I don't I didn't always know when I was younger what to do with romantic gestures that I that were unwanted to me and I don't mean like sexual I mean like a guy who likes you in high school or call you know and it like I just feel like I didn't always have the so I didn't always have the self-confidence maybe or I felt like he's just trying to be nice it went through my head and then I felt bad um about it and I think that's something to explore more deeply too as feminists like what we watch as kids, um, women being rescued, women being woken up from sleep by a kiss, women um, needing men to, you know, fill an office with roses and beg for them to come back, whatever, like all the stuff that we're exposed to that then later, even though we get that uncomfortable feeling, we don't trust the uncomfortable, or at least I didn't trust the uncomfortable feeling always right away because I felt – 
bad. Um, and I think that feeling of like guilt or shame or whatever, feeling bad about yourself is part of the harassment too. Like, why don't I like this? It's so nice. Why, why am, why am I not into this? Do you know what I mean? And like when you're older, you know, the reason you're not into it is because it's super creepy and gross and the guy should leave you alone. But I think it's harder for younger women to, to deal with that emotion. Yeah. relation to like Snow White for four weeks and a girl who is young, a woman who's young and whatever. But I, I do think that's like that, um, the pressure for women to get married, um, I think has a lot to do with this feeling bad if a guy is being overly romantic. It's, it, it's almost like it, it could trigger a feeling of what if this is a nice guy and I'm letting him go, I'm not paying attention or I'm not appreciating it. Yeah. And, it go, and I feel like it goes back to the whole, not, it doesn't really matter what the 
come in one. Yeah. It's just like it goes into this whole patriarchal idea of you need to get married and have babies. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't it doesn't matter like that that sort of thing, which also infuriates me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I totally, I totally agree. I just think that. I think that it's, like, a little, it's a small story about a creepy guy that, like, went viral because it, because it was so, like, easy to divide men and women on their opinions on the story. Um, but I think it's a deeper feminist, I think it's a deeper feminist conversation that will come, not this incident, but that will come back to again and again about the expectations that society sets for women and what that does to our relationships and how we're seen by men and how, you know, I mean, that, that woman is an object to be one to that man. Mm -hmm. Yep. Also the whole, uh, patriarchal viewpoint that causes some people to think that a situation like that is romantic or whatever leaves out the fact that a woman may not like that attention or want that guy because she doesn't want any guy. Yeah, and that's so right. it's very also heteronormative. That's true. Yeah, it's like assuming that you should appreciate a man's advances and and accept them when like that might not be what you're into at all. Yeah. Yep. I feel I feel like I'm growing back into it the older I get. <laughs> Does your husband listen to this podcast? Um, sometimes, and I don't really care. <laughs> um. Okay. So chapter news. Yeah. So Monday, September 18th, we have a happy hour at the Harp and Fiddle in Bethesda. And Harp and Fiddle is going to be donating 10% of the proceeds of our happy hour to the chapter. So please come out. Bring your friends. Everyone is welcome. Unless you're like a Nazi or something. Um, yeah, no Nazis. <laughs> no white supremacists. No Nazis. No white supremacists. No misogynists. Yeah. But mm-hmm. anyone who is down with now's mission, uh, who is progressive... Bring yourself, bring your friends, come to our happy hour. And then on October 1st, we're having our Racial Justice Now event. We have four panelists confirmed so far. The first one is Gilda Yazi, who is the Vice President of National Now. We have Mimi Hassanin, who is a Senior Fellow at the Montgomery County Office of Community Partnerships, and she's also their liaison to the Middle Eastern community in Montgomery County. We have Delegate Marise Morales, who is serving currently in the Maryland House of Delegates. And we have Lorianne Sales, who currently serves on the Montgomery County Community Action Board, which is the county's anti-poverty advocacy board. And she represents the city of Gaithersburg residents in critical resources like affordable housing, financial literacy, and access to quality early child education. 
So we're very excited about the four panelists we it's gonna be have so announced so far. Yes, it's going to be a great discussion. And we hope you'll join us on October 1st. Uh, you can get tickets to the events on Eventbrite. Search for Racial Justice Now. We also have it linked to from our website and Facebook page. You can go to our website at MC for Montgomery County, MD for Maryland, now for National Organization for Women, mcmdnow.org. Uh, there's information about the event on our event calendar and also on our homepage. And we're on social media at mcmdnow, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you'll see us posting about our panelists and about the event so definitely please join us on october 1st we're very excited it's gonna be so good yes i almost can't believe the panelists we have yes <laughs> and it's our event <laughs> no we, we we deserve good panelists come on <laughs> all right so we're gonna cut right now um jenny rose and i interviewed a woman who talked about the era and so we will bring you her interview in just a second. I'm Alyssa. I'm not Alyssa. And I'm not Alyssa. All right, we have a special guest with us today. Um, she's here to talk about the ERA. Her name is Jennifer Rand. Jennifer is a former civil litigation attorney and is currently a widely read blogger. Most importantly to us at MC Now, she's a feminist. We like that. She's a regular Huffington Post contributor, and her most recent piece, Defending Hillary, damn right I'm still with her, and here's why, was shared on Facebook over 25,000 times so far. We could talk to Jennifer all day, but we think the way our listeners could learn the most from our time with her is if she shares her feminist insight and legal expertise on the need for the Equal Rights Amendment. You can check out her article on the topic, Equal Means Equal, Why Women Need the ERA Now More Than Ever, and her uh, other Huffington Post pieces at HuffingtonPost.com slash author slash Jennifer dash Rand. We'll also post a link to that on this episode's page of our website. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter and Facebook at TFemomist, and you can find her blog at www.TheFemomist.com. All right, so Jennifer, do you mind giving us an overview on the ERA so our listeners can learn a bit about what it is and why we need it? Absolutely. Um, well, we do know that an overwhelming majority of Americans, about 80% um, of the population, think that the Constitution already provides a guarantee of equal rights for men and women. Um, and so that just goes to show that 80% um, of Americans do not really understand the ERA, and they certainly don't understand that it was never ratified. Um, if you go back to the 70s, uh, when I was in about fifth grade, it really looked as though the ERA was going to pass at the time. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read what the ERA says. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Um, so we really thought, yes. Just so everyone's clear, that's it, right? Like that that, that's it. Like it's. Well, 24 words, as I now know, like that's like, it's not like it was 
an 8,000 page document. Oh no. That, right. Oh no. Oh no. Uh, there is a, a section giving Congress the power to enforce the provisions and um, also section three that it shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. So for those listening who don't know, the way that um, constitutional amendments work, um, they don't happen very often because uh, it requires both houses of Congress as well as two-thirds of the states, legislatures, to agree that this is something that should be an amendment to our Constitution. Uh, that's why uh, it was great. In the 1970s, at the tail end of the civil rights movement, uh, when uh, people were really looking at human and civil rights in this country in a way they never had before, the ERA really picked up a lot of steam and um, passed both houses of Congress and then went on to be ratified by a lot of states, 35. Uh, and so that's three shy of threshold. Three shy, yes, they needed 38. And Congress imposed a deadline. First, the deadline was, uh, I believe, 1979. But the last time that they imposed the deadline, it was for 1982. And no further states after that first 35 um, before 1982 ratified the ERA. And it's important to keep in mind what was going on in this country uh, in 1982 or in the early 80s. The Democrats lost control, basically, of the government. And familiar. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit like deja vu in certain respects, but um, lost control. And we had a new president, Ronald Reagan. Family values, that qu I'll put that in quotes because I think it's a misnomer, but family values became very important to the GOP. And that wasn't especially consistent with the notion of women having equal rights to men. There was an, uh, an activist who, by the name of Phyllis Schlafly, yeah. I wish we could have just videotaped your, your shaking your head of disgust. My, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a fan of Phyllis Schlafly. Well, I might add that in fifth grade, you know, when I was young, I had no idea that the reason the ERA went on completely off the tracks was because of a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, Gender traitor? Mm -hmm. yes, and I do have a, a major problem with women who are anti-women. Call me crazy, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she was speaking to white married women who tended not to work outside the home. And there were a lot of them, and there were, white men basically still held all the power kind of still do, unfortunately. Uh, but that was what happened to the ERA back then. And everything kind of, I don't want to say everything, all the activism stopped, because that does a real disservice to the women and men who continued to fight for the ERA. And the legislation was um, before Congress 
to essentially remove the deadline or extend the deadline, um, every legislature uh, session from 1983 on. So it's not like, it, it kind of went into a dormant period, let's say, where the public opinion just wasn't in favor overall of the idea of equal rights. Um, so fast forward to, um, to now and to today and the election of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, which I won't go into detail on that, but we're all living the nightmare. Except, <laughs> except to say that possibly the only silver lining to come out of this was that people acknowledged that perhaps we're more sexist than we would like to admit as a society, uh, and even misogynistic. And so you started hearing more and more rumblings about the ERA. And look, the Women's March was all about the ERA. When you look at what the mission statement said, basically it was saying all women are entitled to equal rights. Um, so one difference now, though, is that we're intersectional. Uh, it's not good enough just for white women to have equal rights. We want all women to have equal rights. And um, women of color uh, in the society are worse off than white women. So it's especially important that they are included in the ERA. So Nevada, and it, I just met the state senator who championed this. Um, Nevada just ratified the ERA earlier this year. Uh, senator Pat Spearman headed that. And um, that was really exciting you know, for activists. Now we feel as though we only need two more states. Well, you remember there was that deadline. <laughs> so first of all, I question whether uh, Congress even has the authority to put a deadline on states ratifying an amendment to the Constitution. To me, that seems to be something of an abrogation of state rights. Has but, that ever, have they ever done that before for another constitutional amendment? Or Yes, no, that's right. Have they ever imposed a, a time limit before, or is this the first time that's happened? I can't, I'm not sure if it's the first time that's happened, but I can point to precedent that the 27th Amendment, there was a, a period of about 200 years between when Congress uh, passed the, the amendment and the time that the states ended up ratifying the amendment. The 27th Amendment. Uh, it has something to do with salaries, I believe. Oh, okay, for, okay. For members of Congress, you know. So uh, something that was, I guess, important to enough. Them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in my mind, and, and the minds of many, set the precedent. So, you know, in our view, three more states. The 27th Amendment basically says that if they vote themselves a pay raise, it takes an, it takes effect next term instead of, they can't, like, so it prevents them from voting themselves a raise right now. Okay. That's what. Well, 
That's good. Uh, <laughs> but this is more important. This is this is really more important. Uh, you know, the Constitution, it all comes back to the Constitution, has a lot of male pronouns in it. It has a lot of talk about persons and citizens. But when we go back to the founding fathers, we have we know that women and people of color were not considered persons with, with any attending rights. So with that history, the 14th Amendment was passed um, and clearly gave equal protection to person, people of color. But nowhere in the amendment, even in that amendment, did it say anything about sex or gender. And this has been a problem over the years because we have some very conservative Supreme Court justices, and they are the ultimate arbiter of what's constitutional and what isn't. And Justice Scalia himself has gone on record multiple times and has said that there is nothing in the Constitution that pre prevents sex discrimination. He said that. So taking him at his word and remembering that Donald Trump has promised to only appoint justices in the mold of Scalia, I would it's safe to say that our, our view of the Constitution, or at least the Supreme Court's view of the Constitution, is not going to be more in favor of expanding human rights or civil rights. Can I read a quote from your article that sure. I like? This is from the, uh, the ERA article, Jennifer's ERA article that I mentioned earlier. Um, says, if there are no guarantees for equal rights in our Constitution, this means that women are at the mercy of all three branches of our government, a government that is by and large made up of men, a government that is now run entirely by conservatives. So I like that quote. So right. Yeah. Well, let, let, me, let me move on to that because um, opponents of the ERA also like to say, well, we don't need an amendment because we've got laws that you know Congress has enacted over the years to protect women and um, Title VII, for example. Unfortunately, this patchwork of laws that we have accumulated over time is very tenuous. Um, I, I think we all saw, uh, we all took a moment of <sighs> relief that Congress did not repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, As people who listen to this podcast were subject yeah. to multiple weeks in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that was, that, that was really important. And, you know, we don't want to be fighting that fight for every single law that is designed to protect minorities and, and families and children and women in this country. Um, it... It just isn't, it doesn't make any sense when you can have a one-sentence amendment in your Constitution saying that men and women 
have equal rights. Um, I don't know how esoteric you want me to get here about the way that the Supreme Court has, um, has looked at the 14th Amendment over time. The idea of scrutinizing laws, governmental action, and how closely do we need to look at it, you know, to say, oh, what they're really doing here is they're trying to discriminate against this group in favor of the majority or the white men. Um, so race-based classifications were determined to require strict scrutiny, which you know, is a very high level of um, examination. Uh, originally, gender-based um, laws or laws that, um, that impacted women more, much more than men, let's say, were examined under a rational basis um, standard, which is a very low threshold. Um, so it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually, who in, I believe it was 1976, uh, argued that sex warranted a higher standard of review than rational basis and convinced the Supreme Court at that time to move the level of scrutiny to what is called intermediate scrutiny. Um, it's really watered down strict scrutiny. I mean, I, I, I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I know she wants the Equal Rights Amendment to, um, to be ratified. And she was doing the best she could at that time. But intermediate scrutiny is, you know, second-class scrutiny. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, um, you know, a lot of laws end up n passing muster uh, that wouldn't if they were they had to do with race, um, like for example, the Voting Rights Act. You know, there's the the Lilly Ledbetter um, Fair Pay Act. That was designed to ensure that women who worked for an employer for some period of time and only then found out that they were being discriminated against in terms of pay. Because who really goes around talking about their salaries to their coworkers? Nobody does that. So in this country. Yeah. In this country. That is true. Yeah. Other countries. Other countries. Right. It's it's like in this country it's some weird taboo, which I guess I read something that said that led that kind of led to our problem in a way. Right, right. Well, or that were not led to the problem, but led to it being a problem for so long. Yeah. Because we didn't know about it. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's kind of shrouded in secrecy, and that's something else that the Trump administration did rather recently. They undid an Obama. Um, administration measure that would require the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to get these stats from employers to actually see are the, they being discriminated. Yeah, with the help of another woman who's against women, Ivanka. Betsy? Ivanka Trump. We can make a list. Basically, uh. anybody in the Trump, oh, Kellyanne Conway, yeah. who I went to law school with. Um, did you really? I did. I went to law school with Kellyanne Conway. I know. I know. Did you know her? 
I is, let's talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I knew her in passing. Uh, at that time, she was not married. She yeah. had a different name. Her name was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. She and I went to law school at GW uh, in the early 90s. <coughs> and uh, the main thing I remember about Kellyanne Fitzpatrick is when she basically said that women uh, victims of domestic abuse really are to blame for their situation for because they don't get up and leave. For God's sake. And I remember that all of these years because my friends... Get the who, inside scoop here on 52 Women. My, femi my feminist friends who were in the same class with her would come out and say, you are not going to believe what Kellyanne Fitzpatrick said today in class. And probably still saying it, I'm yeah. sure. She still, she still believes all this stuff. Um, but anyway, you know, that's, that's kind of an aside. Yeah. She's an anti-feminist and proud of it, yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard her say. Yeah. So, Which I would rather else? own it than the other one saying, no, I'm totally for women. I'm totally behind. Just sit down, Ivanka. Go, yeah. go back to stealing shoe designs and please <laughs> leave us alone. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag Allegedly. complicit, Allegedly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Saturday Night Live yeah. skit. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So, All right, so now that we uh, oh, can I can I just say one more thing? Sure, yeah. I, this is the first thing I like to say to people who claim to be against the ERA. And by the way, the public is ninety three percent in favor of the ERA, especially when you talk about it in term in more general terms without actually saying the Equal Rights Amendment or the ERA. Oh, like Obamacare versus the Affordable Care exactly. Act. Exactly, yep. it's all about labels. It. It's all about labels. I like to start with why not the yeah. ERA? Mm -hmm. what, what exactly is it that you're afraid of? What, what, why not? <laughs> I mean, why should women not have equal rights in this country with men? We, we contribute to society in countless ways. We bear the children. I mean, you know. It just doesn't make sense, but it, it makes sense when you view it in the context of the patriarchy, white men dominating society throughout our history, going back to, again, I'll, I'll end with the Constitution. Uh, Abigail Adams said to her husband, uh, remember the ladies, and I know you guys uh, profiled um, Abigail Adams uh, yeah. a, a number of weeks back, and clearly... her. <laughs> no, he just like basically was like, uh, no. Nice yeah. try, lady. <laughs> Blow it off. You'll be okay. <laughs> so, you know, we've been waiting a long time for this country to remember the ladies. Yeah, since before the Constitution was even written. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh... You know, the, this is the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. We ran out of time. But now is a good time. Now we know that how much sexism and misogyny we really have in this country. We know about all the discrimination. We know about, you know, women not being paid the same amount as men. And we have the statistics, you know. We have, we have the, quote, facts, not the alternative facts, to quote my, my former... <laughs> yeah, your former <laughs> classmate. <laughs> I, I swear, no law professor that I knew of 
would have encouraged us to rely on alternative facts in making a case. Um, I really, when I write, I make it a point to include hyperlinks to actual studies, you know, so yeah. statistics matter, facts matter, and we know these things to be true. We know that there's discrimination in this country against women. So it's time to remember the ladies and fix that. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Jennifer. We appreciate it. Um, hopefully you listeners out there learned a lot about the ERA. And check out Jennifer's Huffington Post articles. Again, we'll post a link to it on our website. And check her out on social media and her, her blog. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for having me. All right, so EB2 and I are back. We're going to do our Woman of the Week segment. I'm mostly going to listen, as always. Okay, so we're recording this segment on September 12th. And since yesterday was 9-11, we're going to do a hero of 9-11 for our Woman of the Week. Our hero is Betty Ong, who was a flight attendant on American Airlines Flight 11 which crashed into the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001. Betty was born in San Francisco, and she worked for American Airlines for 14 years. She was a head flight attendant. She is remembered fondly by her coworkers and family. She was based out of Logan Airport in Boston, Flight 11 was traveling from Boston to Los Angeles on September 11th when about 15 minutes into the flight, things took a turn for the worst. Betty was preparing meals for the passengers in the back of the plane when she heard screaming. A passenger alerted her that two of her fellow flight attendants were stabbed and the attacker sprayed mace in business class. Betty made the decision to call the American Airlines Reservation Desk. She stayed on the phone with them for 23 minutes during the attack, relaying information. It was because of her wherewithal to make that phone call that people on the grounds and not flying in one of the hijacked planes that day first learned something was not right. She told the Reservation Desk, quote, The cockpit is not answering the phone and there's somebody stabbed in business class. We can't breathe in business class. Somebody's got mace or something. We can't get into the cockpit. The door won't open. Aboard Flight 11 was actually the ringleader of the 9-11 attacks, plus four other attackers. Over the course of her call, Betty learns they murdered up to five people on the plane prior to crashing into the tower. Two of her co-workers, a passenger, and most likely both pilots. Among the information, she and another flight attendant, Madeline Amy Sweeney, who also made a call to American Airlines from the plane, relayed was information about seat numbers for the attackers, which helped investigators identify who they were. The last words she spoke on her call were, We are flying low. We are flying very, very low. We are flying way too low. Oh my God, we are way too low. Her call ended abruptly, and two minutes later, her plane crashed into the North Tower. Betty was 45 years old, and Madeline, by the way, was recently back for from maternity leave, um, so she had a young child at home. 
Uh, New York Magazine pointed out on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 that women who made up a large portion of the flight attendants on that day have been, large, quote, largely left out of the hero narrative uh, in favor of male firefighters, soldiers, and politicians. Her hometown, Betty's hometown of San Francisco, though, named a rec center after her. It's called the Betty Ann Ong Chinese Recreation Center. So... We're remembering Betty on uh, this week, and and hopefully uh, the stories of more heroic women that day will come out uh, instead of the manly narrative we hear so often. Yeah. So she was the first one to let people on the ground know that hey, hey, there's something going on. Yeah. I, I don't want to, um, yeah, I think women and men can all, all be heroic, but I just think that there's a quality in women that I really appreciate that represents calm in a storm to me, and that's just such a strong signifier of that, of that feeling I have about, about women, and I feel like women are often, uh, portrayed as hysterical and um, weak and unable to handle uh, things in a calm way. Um, and I think even like last week when we were talking about the hurricane, like that woman who, the story of the mother who carried the, the child, like it, singing row, row your boat to her the, all the way to the hospital. Like just incredible the, the way... Um, the way the truth about women and about women's ability to be stable and calm in the middle of chaos is is uh, hidden when you see women in movies, women in television shows, women in other um, women in other, portrayed in other ways. They're they're just they're just shown to be like I said, hysterical. It's just amazing to hear the story of a woman who's in the ultimate chaos. And is able to <laughs> relay information. Seed numbers. Yeah. Two women. Two yeah. women did that. Yeah. Able to relay seat numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to a different topic, you mentioned the hurricane. Oh, yeah. Um, so National Now did put out a an email in response to the hurricane encouraging... To Hurricane um, Irma this time. Yes, Hurricane Irma. Uh, we've had two big hurricanes in the last couple weeks. Um, if you would like to help out organizations that that need help um, and that help out women, you can donate to the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And donations will be sent to coalitions in hurricane-affected areas to use for disaster relief and domestic violence programs. So we'll post a link to that um, on the website, and we'll, as we do for all the other things we talk about, we'll post links to the stories we reference, um, we give sources, so check out the website. So I hope we'll see you guys at some of our upcoming events, and we will uh, talk to you next week from the pod. Yep. Bye. Bye.